welcome to the Reclaim Audio Library. I'm Comrade Nobody, and today I will be reading Liberal Co-Optation and Counterinsurgency by Comrade Dirac from Rise, Edition 3. As the U.S. Empire reaches an advanced stage of decay, capitalism must find new ways to sustain itself. Amidst mounting contradictions, ever greater sections of the public are becoming aware that the rot is systemic. Amidst mounting contradictions, ever greater sections of the public are becoming aware that the rot is systemic. When Me Too exploded in 2017 and scores of powerful men were outed as predators, people began to reckon with the general phenomenon of toxic masculinity in the workplace. In the long, hot summer of 2020, thousands of liberals posted the slogan End Systemic Racism on their lawns and car bumpers, and the new Jim Crow, which argues that the prison system is a modern-day continuation of chattel slavery, rocketed to the top of bestseller lists. Within this crisis of legitimacy, wokeness is the empire's only redemption. The empire knows it. In spring 2021, the CIA posted a video called Humans of CIA to YouTube. In the video, a Latin CIA officer declares that, I am a cisgender millennial who has been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, but my existence is not a box-checking exercise. The officer boasts of her multicultural background and references her burdens as a mother. She name-checks the patriarchy and imposter syndrome and quotes from Zora Neale Hurston. In a montage of professional photos, the officer is seen smiling alongside John Brennan, the CIA director from 2013 to 2017, and Gina Haspel, director from 2018 to 2021, and chief of a CIA black site in the early 2000s. This is an increasingly common tactic, sometimes referred to as intersectional imperialism. Moves like this seek to co-opt popular discourses of intersectionality in order to brand the CIA as a progressive institution. It is not always as heavy-handed as Humans of CIA, which achieved a ratio of 21,000 dislikes to 1,000 likes on YouTube. The CIA will refine its tactics as it continues to recruit young talent and manufacture consent for its misdeeds. In doing so, it will draw from the ruling class's deep well of experience in sabotaging dissent. Section heading, Counterinsurgency. In the eyes of the U.S. ruling class, any movement for black liberation is an existential threat to the legitimacy of the existing power structure. In response, the ruling class turns to the tactics of counterinsurgency. Counterinsurgency is marked by a self-conscious acknowledgement that the state needs legitimacy to stabilize its rule and that under conditions of insurgency, its legitimacy is slipping. In such a situation, the occupying force must do more than simply ferret out the active conspirators, because an insurgency is not reducible to a conspiracy. Rather, as the U.S. Army Field Manual points out, it must gain insight into cultures, perceptions, values, beliefs, interests, and decision-making processes of individuals and groups. Christian Williams argues that counterinsurgency involves both a hard side and a soft side. On the one hand, violence, surveillance, infiltration, and incarceration. On the other, the institutionalization of dissent. Security forces must carefully calibrate between the two. In their initial period of violent crackdown, they might hold out a judicious promise of concessions in order to siphon off the masses from the insurgent cause. After winning a brief peace, they must, quote, implement the promised concessions, discover and neutralize the genuine subversive element, and associate as many prominent members of the population with the government as possible. 
On the hard side is the infamous COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program. Under this decades-long program, the FBI infiltrated a range of progressive groups, including the Communist Party USA, the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords, and the American Indian Movement. The FBI used a range of tactics like instigating splits within organizations, publishing libel in the media, bringing about sham prosecutions, and assaulting and killing activists. On the soft side, the forces of reaction seek to either co-opt radical ideas or to co-opt the radicals themselves. The CIA rebrands itself. Cops kneel with protesters, and Amazon posts a black square to Instagram. This creates the illusion that the institution in question shares our goals and need not be opposed. In a world of limited political horizons, superficial half-measures become the dream of progress. NGOs, or non-governmental organizations, play a starring role in soft counterinsurgency. Sometimes they openly partner with the government, sometimes they act indirectly or in parallel. NGOs, which exist among a web of financial and personal connections to capitalists and government officials, naturally seek to preserve class rule. Subheading, the Ford Foundation. The Ford Foundation serves as a useful case study for the counterinsurgent functions of NGOs. The Ford Foundation serves as a useful case study for the counterinsurgent function of NGOs. Its example is not unique. Many other big foundations collaborated with the government on anti-communist and counter-revolutionary projects throughout the post-war period, 1945 and onward. Its example is not unique. Many other big foundations collaborated with the government on anti-communist and counter-revolutionary projects throughout the post-war period, 1954 and onward. Subheading, Anti-Communist Intervention in Europe. The Ford Foundation was a major donor to the Congress for Cultural Freedom, or CCF, an institution of the so-called Cultural Cold War. The purpose of the CCF was twofold, to create a new genre of abstract art to counter socialist realism, and to boost the U.S. image as a dominant cultural force. The program was established immediately after the founding of the CIA in 1947, at a time when communism still held dangerous appeal for many Western artists and intellectuals. The chosen vehicle was abstract expressionism, the genre of Pollock, de Kooning, and Rothko, which exemplifies individualism and free expression. The CCF toured Europe multiple times with abstract expressionist exhibitions and partnered with the Museum of Modern Art, whose president was Nelson Rockefeller, to promote the forum in the United States. The CCF also funded more openly anti-communist institutions, such as the Philharmonica Hungarica, an orchestra made up of refugees from the 1956 Soviet invasion of Hungary. CCF contributions were only one facet of the Ford Foundation's post-war project to rebuild European capitalism. Donations to educational, medical, and other civic institutions were the modus operandi of the Marshall Plan, a program which was described by its administrator, Paul G. Hoffman, as being chiefly aimed at anti-communism, not philanthropy. The Ford Foundation was a contractor on the Marshall Plan and hired Hoffman as its president from 1950 to 52. It later undertook its own Marshall-style endeavor. In 1956, the Foundation's Director of International Affairs, Shepard Stone, who had worked on the Marshall Plan as Hoffman's deputy, wrote that, the strengthening of Europe and American-European relations is fundamental to the security and well-being of the United States and to the Foundation's interest in peace, freedom, and human progress. 
Stone would elaborate that if a new spirit is not infused in European society, revolution, supported by the communists, may win the sympathies of the people. Between 1951 and 1956, the foundation spent $24 million on projects in Europe, and its European budget increased after the Hungarian uprising in 1956. Over the ensuing years, foundation funds went to aid for Hungarian refugee students, exchange programs for Polish students and technical specialists, an East European and East Asian studies program at Oxford, a new London think tank ominously named the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and multiple new sociological institutes in France. CERN, the Swiss Nuclear Research Facility, received $1.8 million in gifts. Subheading, Partnership with the Congress of Racial Equality. In the late 60s, the contradictions facing poor black communities in the U.S. had reached new heights. After years of intense agitation, holding out hopes of racial progress, material conditions in many black areas had worsened. Rebellions broke out in cities across the country. In 1967, riots became an institutional form of black protest, with government agencies counting 164 civil disorders, which caused around $570 million of property damage. The poor had taken to open-class warfare. The white bourgeoisie quickly realized that force alone would be insufficient to pacify black rebellion. In August of 1966, Ford Foundation President McGeorge Bundy declared to a banquet of the National Urban League, We believe that full equality for all American black people is now the most urgent domestic concern of this country. We believe that the Ford Foundation must play its full part in this field. The foundation went on to become a deep influence on the civil rights movement, financing and influencing almost all major protest groups, including CORE, SCLC, the National Urban League, and the NAACP. When Floyd McKissick became National Director of CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, in 1966, the organization was several thousand dollars in debt. Hardcore black power rhetoric was liable to scare away potential donors, whereas CORE's slogans about black control of black communities appealed to Ford Foundation officials seeking to cultivate a comprador class within the black nation. CORE received $175,000 from the foundation. They used the money to run a massive voter registration drive in poor, black-majority neighborhoods of Cleveland, which resulted in the election of Carl Stokes, the first black mayor of any major city. They also ran a youth leadership training program, which aimed to socialize youth and cultivate future community leaders. Later that year, McKissick would outline a program for ownership of businesses in black neighborhoods. Foundation money had compromised CORE. Ultimately, the organization served the aims of the ruling class by funneling radical energy into electoral campaigns and black capitalism. Heading, Black Lives Matter. Subheading, Peace Policing, Oakland 2009. In the Black Lives Matter era, peace policing, condemning protesters for nuisance or property damage, has been an effective tactic for subduing rebellion. Peace policing may intersect with a valid critique of adventurism, but it is more often a self-defeating critique which conflates property damage with violence and obscures the police's primary role in initiating violence against protesters. Under the guise of strategic shrewdness, movement leaders worked with police to divide protesters between good and bad, or local and outside agitator. The Oscar Grant protests exemplify the damage that peace policing can cause. On January 1st, 2009, Oscar Grant was murdered by transit police at a subway station in Oakland. Riots broke out the following weekend. In response, a local NGO called the Coalition Against Police Executions, CAPE, organized its own protest on January 14th with the mayor and representatives of various nonprofits lined up as speakers. 
All the speakers urged the crowd to remain peaceful. Cape placed marshals around the perimeter and informants inside the crowd. When the crowd refused to disperse at the end of the program, the marshals attempted to push them out of the street. This incited the crowd to begin breaking windows. After consulting with police, the Cape marshals withdrew from the area and let the cops swoop in with tear gas. The trial of Johannes Masserly, the officer who killed Oscar Grant, was set to wrap up with a verdict in June 2010. Shortly before, community leaders met with the mayor and police to develop a plan to prevent riots. A nonprofit called Urban Peace Movement circulated an email instructing organizations to inoculate their membership against overreacting to an unfavorable verdict and to find peaceful outlets for their frustration. An organization called Youth Uprising sponsored a public service announcement featuring local rappers, civil rights lawyers, and law enforcement officials discouraging violent protests. Local clergy encouraged their parishioners to stay home while the verdict was read. Subheading, Co-Optation, Minneapolis, 2020. On May 5th, 2020, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. Three days later, protesters burned down the third precinct. The explosion of popular energy was unprecedented. In the early days, state officials were uncertain whether they had the might to restore control. Governor Tim Walls said on May 30th that we do not have the numbers. We cannot arrest people when we are trying to hold ground. Three days later, a Minnesota National Guard airman said that the state was in riot purgatory, that the National Guard had to wait for the scales to tip before it could move to take control. Within the same period, on May 30th, a local NGO called Pillsbury United Communities, PUC, thrust itself into the spotlight. It held a press conference along with Jamie Foxx, former NBA player Stephen Jackson, Black Lives Matter leader Tamika Mallory, and George Floyd's family. A few days later, it made a call for donations in the name of justice for George Floyd. PUC, however, is tightly connected with police power in Minnesota. Its funding stream comes in part from mega corporations like 3M, U.S. Bank, Cargill, and Target, which all donate to PUC via big-name intermediaries like Greater Twin Cities United Way and the Minneapolis Foundation. These corporations in turn rely on the police to discipline the very labor force that generates their wealth. PUC also has a history of collaborating directly with the police. In December 2014, the FBI gave PUC a Director's Community Leadership Award for its crime prevention efforts. PUC had been active in the state's Weed and Seed program, which brings together police and community leaders in cooperation against gang violence. The president at the time, Chonda Smith-Baker, currently sits on a working group for the Minnesota Department of Public Safety, purportedly directed towards reducing police violence. In moments of social upheaval, pillars of the community attract the attention of newly activated liberals looking for a leader to follow or a place to throw their money. By taking up this role, PUC and other compromised liberal orgs take space and momentum from genuine grassroots and revolutionary organizations. Heading. Conclusion. Communists often face an uphill battle when critiquing the left-leaning gestures of corporations and politicians. This is progress, however small, and who are we to critique progress? Someone might respond. However, it is the task of the revolutionary to be harshly critical of progress. Capital understands the critical need to tamp down social contradictions by offering limited forms of progress on its own terms. The only form of progress that matters is the advance in political power of the proletariat and our proximity to total liberation. The only form of progress that matters is the advance in political power of the proletariat and our proximity to total liberation. This audio recording is a product of the Reclaim Audio Library, brought to you by the Party for Reclamation and Survival. Support the party by following us on Twitter or Instagram at reclaim underscore survive. 
or by subscribing to either our coffee account at ko-fi.com slash rasredaid or our Patreon at patreon.com slash plowandstars. That's P-L-O-U-G and stars. Or if you are interested in joining or helping the party in any way, or you would like more educational materials, then send us an email from a secure anonymous email address to reclamation.and.survival at protonmail.com. That's reclamation.and.survival at protonmail.com. Solidarity, comrades, and thank you for listening.